Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome once again to New Books in the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Hausman. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Louis Warren to the podcast. Dr. Warren is the W. Turrentine Jackson Professor of Western U.S. History at the University of California, Davis, and is the author of several books and articles, including The Hunter's Game, Poachers and Conservationists in 20th Century America, and Buffalo Bill's America, William Cody and the Wild West Show. Today, we'll be talking about his newest book, God's Red Sun, The Ghost Dance Religion and the Making of Modern America, which came out with Basic Books in 2017, and this year won the Bancroft Prize for the Best Book in American History. Louis, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much for having me. Why don't we begin, as we usually do on this show, by hearing first a little bit about yourself. Why don't you tell us about your background and your path to becoming interested in history and becoming a professional historian? Oh, uh, well, you know, I, I kind of wandered into professional history the way I think most people do. I read a lot of books and um, didn't anticipate becoming a historian until... I guess I was I must have been finished with college for some time and and people had been suggesting that I apply to graduate school and I decided to do that uh and it 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 sort of swept me away once I got there it it was just one of those things that uh one of those paths I took that uh became <clears throat> surprisingly um more appealing as I went along um I actually started graduate school as an Africanist. I had been in teaching in Southern Central Africa for two years before I went to graduate school. And it was at graduate school that I turned my sights back to the American West, which is where I'm from. Uh, And I had grown up reading a lot of Western history, but growing up um, in reading textbooks in high school and then in college, the West never really figured much more than at most a chapter in a textbook, usually a few paragraphs. Um, and so it was really exciting to me when I got to graduate school and actually discovered you could make a whole career out of writing Western history and sort of rethinking American history from the West, which is a big part of what I do. And what drew you to the topic of the book that we're talking about today? What drew you to the ghost dance religion in particular? The ghost dance is one of those events that you come across in the history of the West always. It, it's a sort of, it's a signature moment in the story of the colonization of the West. Um, it, it's usually presented as the end of the Indian Wars. That's usually the way it, it is pitched in textbooks because the ghost dance moment, uh, the ghost dance is a religious revival, but when the army tried to suppress it at uh, in South Dakota among the Lakota Sioux, uh, they massacred some 200 people uh, thereabouts, uh, possibly a good deal more than that, at a place called Wounded Knee. And um, so it's, it's often tangled up with the story of hostilities between 
whites and Indians, but it, it, it really is a story of a, of a religion. And I guess what, what drew me to it was a number of things. Um, it is this signature moment, of course, but it, it's also, uh, I grew up in Nevada and the ghost dance, while the, the story of Wounded Knee clearly happens in South Dakota, uh, the, the ghost dance came from Nevada. It, it comes from western central Nevada, a little town called Yarrington, and a prophet there who was a northern Paiute man named Wavoka, also known as Jack Wilson. Uh, he was a ranch hand and a woodcutter uh, and a visionary. Um, who had experienced a series of visions and began to teach those visions to uh, initially to, to his people, to Northern Paiute people, and it spread across the West. And one of the things that intrigued me about that story is just that I, I have been through Yarrington, um, and I've been through that region a number of times in my life. It's, it's quite remote. It's, it's not the kind of place where you arrive and say, aha, you know, this, this must have been, this, this place must have been the center of really big things. Um, it's like much of, of rural Nevada, it, the area around Yarrington is uh, largely unpopulated and Yarrington itself is a small town. And, um, you know, the question in my mind, one of my questions was why, how did a religious revival sweep out of here? How did the prophet come from here? to reach such a vast audience. Because what happens in 1889 and 90 is that that religion swept most of the Indian reservations in the American West um, and in, in all over uh, in Eastern Oregon and Idaho and uh, out onto the plains and the Dakotas and in Montana and down to Oklahoma and over to New Mexico. It, it, w it was all over. Um, and how that happened was one of the things that, that intrigued me why did it start there, and what did it mean that it spread when it did? It sounds to me like you're talking about context, which is, of course, one of the historian's primary tools. And that's one of the major arguments that you make in the book, is that to understand the ghost dance religion, you need to understand its particular chronological and its geographical context. So can you tell us a bit about the United States and the American West in the 1880s and 1890s, and particularly this place that, that kind of drew you in, this place in northwestern Nevada? Yeah, it, it's usually, again, when we tell these stories, oh, I'm sorry, I've got a dog <laughs> barking okay. here. Can you hear her? I, I can, but that's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, usually, when we tell these stories, the, um, the, the ghost dance is, again, because it's presented as the end of... Indian resistance uh, to to white rule, and we can get to that in a in a moment about what it what it represents and how we should think about it. But because it's presented that way, usually what we talk about in textbooks, um, and and again, if we're focusing on South Dakota, we talk about uh, the decline of the, the the elimination near the near extinction of the buffalo under the pressure of hunting and white settlement. Um, and the way that that destroyed the lives of Plains Indians and left them with so little hope. And the story is usually told that because of this, they grab onto the ghost dance and that it comes right at the end of Indian autonomy. 
And in fact, you know, if you're actually looking carefully at the record here, that that's way too simple and, and in fact eliminates a huge amount of complexity, necessary complexity to the story. Because uh, the ghost dance, again, it comes out of Nevada, which is uh, where, where bison are not an issue. There aren't buffalo in Nevada. Um, there, it is a place in 1889 and 90 uh, that has seen tremendous environmental change and environmental destruction. It, it has been settled and give you to go back a little bit. Nevada was, was colonized by white settlers in significant numbers for the first time beginning in the late 1850s. Um, 1859, there's the discovery of the huge gold and then silver deposits at uh, what comes to be known as the Comstock Lode in Nevada, which is up in up not that far from from the town of Yarrington that I mentioned before, and that creates a mining boom with the deepest and richest mines to that point in American history, and it's a an, a heavily industrial settlement of uh, upwards of of twenty five thousand people. Um, that uh, gathers on these desert hillsides to mine this silver and gold in a very uh, corporate uh, setting. The, the, the mines are owned by what become very large corporations. And it's, um, the, it's kind of the appearance of an industrial and commercial revolution in northern Nevada that just wrecks the surrounding desert. Uh, the timber demands to fire up all the steam-powered boilers and so forth and the mills uh, that were running to to extract the ore from the rock that was mined out of the mountain. There's no coal in Nevada, so it's heavily wood-dependent, uh, which means they cut down the forests that are in Nevada, which aren't that uh, extensive anyway. Uh, it's, a, it's a state that is desert and then mountain, and the forests are on the mountain, but they were cutting those down. The forests are, um, many of the forests are pinyon pine and the pinyon nut provides critical food for native people for, uh, has, has done so for millennia. And certainly in the 1880s and 90s, native people depended on that food um, as they always had. They also, because ranchers arrived to, to depasture their beef, their cattle on the desert and sell the beef to the mines, uh, the, the, the grazing eroded stream banks and created uh, heavy silt deposits in streams, which killed uh, the fish that people relied on, particularly the Lahontan cutthroat trout. Uh, there's, there's just a tremendous amount of environmental destruction. And the result of that, or a result of that, is that native people very quickly, um, after the late 1850s, begin to look for work. Because if you're going to survive, it becomes clear you're going to have to pay money for food at these stores that are that white people shop at, right? That settlers shop at, and uh, native people begin to do the same to do that as well, and they go to work for uh, for settler people and in the towns and cities. They are ranch hands. They put up, say, string barbed wire fences. They break horses. They grade roads. They build houses. They do just about every kind of day labor there is. Um, they're not, native people are not typically allowed in mines. Not typically. White 
miners insist that mining be reserved for them. So the highest paying jobs are jobs that are out of reach for Indian people, but they become laboring people. Women become domestic workers um, and uh, they're, 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 they're raising a lot of settler children, right? Uh, it, it's kind of like, in some ways, I, I mean, I, I sort of compare it in the book uh, to the way that black people work in the South after the Civil War, right? There, there is that kind of labor going on all over Nevada. There's not, there aren't cotton plantations, but there are certainly people out, they're cutting hay, for example. There are a lot of native people who cut hay uh, and, and work on those farms. So um, the, the context for the ghost dance is that. That is the world that this religious revival sweeps through, not the world of hunting and gathering. What you have is a world of people who are now wage laborers who also hunt and gather on the side when they can, but in a world that is increasingly constricted and confined. Uh, there's less and less wild food available. And uh, their autonomy has consequently been reduced significantly. So you, you could say that all of these people remember the old days and that they want them back. And that would be true for most of those people. That really would. Um, overwhelmingly. They, of course, would want those old ways back. But Wovoka himself um, was born right around the time the Comstock load began. He, he grew up in the world of the wage labor economy. He was working on a ranch by the time he was eight years old. So it's not as if um, he, it's it's not as if the, the the primary energies of this religion came out of I would say came out of um, the 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 loss of autonomy itself or maybe well, let me put it this way the 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 energy comes out of a moment after the autonomy is lost um, and this is true out on the plains as well you know the last buffalo hunt among the Lakotas was in the early 1880s. And the ghost dance arrives in 1889. And the last buffalo hunt is in the early 1880s, but there had not been much successful hunting since the late 1870s. And so when the ghost dance arrives, most of the people who are managing to eke out an existence, right, who are managing to, to scrape by, are doing it by, um, they're relying on rations that are provided by the government because the government, it's as payment for land sessions that, that Indian people gave up. Um, and they're also relying on work when they can get it. Um, the guys who, some of the men who, were uh, the big evangelists of the ghost dance on the plains were uh, teamsters, for example. They had been, these are, uh, these are Lakota, Western Sioux men who had been buffalo hunters and warriors had fought Custer. And, and by 1889 and 90 are working as teamsters. Some are working as Indian policemen on the reservation. There's not much work available but they work where they can. They sell firewood. They gather up the bones of buffalo, which are lying around, and sell those because they're companies that buy those to make fertilizer. Um, they're, they're doing what they can to make a living. And that's the world in which the ghost dance 
arrives and around, which creates so much excitement when it does. Tell us more about Wovoka, also known as Jack Wilson himself. What was he like as an individual, and what were the visions that he had that led to the the tenets that he taught as the ghost dance? Well, Wovoka said, uh, though there are many, there are different stories about Wovoka's visions, uh, but he began to have visions as a young man. Um, and people who knew him said that he, he went unconscious. He fell unconscious. He was sick. He fell unconscious and that he, that they couldn't wake him and that they thought he was dead. Um, they, they actually said that he, he stopped breathing uh, and then he woke up and he said he had been to heaven um, and that he'd had this vision. And now um, he, he began to talk this way um, again, as a young man, and I should say that the people who knew him included Northern Paiute people who, who talked about him, um, having, having this experience watching him, right? Um, but then there were also white people who saw him in his, this state, uh, the visionary state, and thought he was dead. And, and, and when they were interviewed many years later, by historians and anthropologists and so forth, um, they said they couldn't explain it. They didn't know what had been happening with with Jack Wilson. Um, Jack Wilson, by the way, was known among his people and among white people as a very gregarious, um, friendly, uh, kind, very dignified man. And always as a, ranchers respected him as a very hard worker, and as a leader, um, they, they typically spoke very highly of his abilities as, uh, uh, to do work. They, they tended, we can, we can talk in a little bit about what, how these different groups of people, Northern Paiutes and white ranchers responded to Wavoka's prophecies and his, um, his claims to supernatural power. But let me talk about his visions. What did he see in these visions? He said that he went to heaven and that, uh, he met God. And that God showed him around and that um, there he also saw all the people, uh, all the good people who had died and they were all alive and they were all young. And uh, that God also gave him a dance, showed him a dance and told him he should do this dance and teach the dance. And that um, if he did, he, he would... Uh, if the people did this dance and they abided by a code of conduct, then this heaven that he was seeing would come to earth and that a Messiah would come and this Messiah would save all his children um, and, and, and bring them to this new earth from the broken old earth. His new earth was going to be green, would be green and verdant and, and revived and, res- and rejuvenated. And they would all be young again forever. And the code of conduct that he taught, um, typically in, in books about the ghost dance, the way that code of conduct is rendered is that Wovoka was told that his pe- the people must not lie, not steal, don't make war on each other, be kind. Um, and... Uh, and do right always. That's, that's typically the way 
that our books tell us those visions went. If, if you go back and look at the actual sources that we have about his visions and about what evangelists of the religion were telling their followers, uh, there's more to it than that. Um, what, what One of the things that intrigued me was the, the first anthropologist who interviewed, there's, only, there's really only one anthropologist who interviews Jack Wilson. Um, in, in early 1892, interviews Wovoka. And Wovoka includes in his list of teachings that you, we must work. We must work for white people, which I take to mean working for dollars um, because Wovoka himself works for white people, but he also sells wood and other things for cash the way a lot of Native people do. Um, and he that I was intrigued with that when I began the book that he was encouraging labor. He, you know, he he says at one point, uh, "We must work all the time and not lie down in idleness." And this this is one of the things that corresponds with what we know of him. He he was a very hardworking guy. Everyone said the guy worked very hard, and he seemed to like to work. And. Uh, be, I, I got intrigued with that, but then when you actually find, you go on and, and look at other sources, um, there's plenty of great evidence that he, there was more to the code of conduct than that, um, that he tells people that in order for the Messiah to come, right, we must live by this code and do this dance. But the code includes not just laboring and not just being kind and not stealing and not making war. Right. The code also includes uh, we must become farmers. We must send our children to school. Everyone should go to church. doesn't matter which church. He says, all these churches are mine. You pick one. And he also says, cooperate with your agents. That, that is, cooperate with the federal employees who supervise the reservations. So a lot of what he's trying to, to teach here is what, what I... The way I read that is that he's uh, trying to teach people, uh, among other things, right, how to bring on the new millennium, how to bring this new world to earth. And to get there, we need to accommodate ourselves to the reservations. This is the reservation era has begun. And this is the big crisis that Native people are facing, is how are they going to live on these reservations? And uh, Wovoka is telling them, well, do these things, and it will end sooner rather than later, right? If you do these things, the Messiah will come. And as you said a few minutes ago, this is not the story that we usually get about the ghost dance. So why do you think most historians and most writers have missed the centrality of wage work and the importance of sending your children to school, for instance? Why have historians missed that in their retelling of the events surrounding the ghost dance? That's a really good question. Um, and it, a big part of it is that people at the time missed it. So you have to ask, like, let's double down on the question. Why not just historians, but why did observers at the time not pick up on it? Um, first, I have to say some of them did hear it. Some of them did notice it. James Mooney, the first anthropologist who wrote to write about the ghost dance um, in, a, in a kind of scholarly way, um, in his classic book uh, about the ghost dance, 
Uh, it's called The Ghost Dance Religion and Sioux Outbreak of 1890. It's, it's the essential book to read, has always been the essential book to read if you want to know about the ghost dance. And it's still, parts of that book are still assigned in college classrooms. It was published in 1896. And he actually says uh, that Wovoka is quoted as saying, send our children to school and become farmers, right? We should become farmers and send our children to school. But he finds it ridiculous. He doesn't believe it. Uh, Mooney's a brilliant man, I have to say, in many ways, and he, he figures in, in the book. There are many things about the ghost dance that Mooney gets right, and that actually, in the way he writes about the ghost dance, I think helps bring on a new way of thinking about religion in the United States. But I, I, I would say this, that most people who observed the ghost dance in 1889-90, most white people now, most non-Indians, um, would look at it and say, well, it's Indians dancing. And dance is so essential to Indian identity, and culture, practice, ceremony, society, uh, that um, dance stands for <laughs> the past uh, when white people are looking at Indians. When white people look at Indians, they see, and they see Indians dancing, they see the past. And they say, this is going away. Because Indians are either going to vanish, they're either all going to die, or they're going to become like white people. This is the age of assimilation, right, where they're government-mandated assimilation campaigns. So the, the, the push is to eliminate Indian culture. And the, the belief that Americans have, by and large, is that Indianness. What it is, whatever it is that makes Indians Indians, is going to disappear, and that dancing is is part of the past, and therefore, if you are dancing as a native person, right, you are clinging to the past in the view of white people at this time, and I think they just couldn't see the way that these dances. Um, it was a new dance, but the way that dancing itself, which is an ancient practice was connected to these new ideas. Uh, there's an awful lot of racism in contemporary accounts where they're looking at, at native people and just any time uh, in the, about 1889 or 90, any time a journalist or a military officer or a government official or, or just about any white person with a pen sits down to write about native people, one of the undergirding assumptions of of their thinking is that native people want to go back to the past. Uh, and, and consequently, white people are fascinated with that idea and unable to see the way that native people are trying to navigate the present and actually being really innovative in, try, in doing that. Right? They, they just don't see it. Uh, so again and again and again, you can find the way this works at the, in the sources of the time. You, you find all of these Indian agents, the, super, the federal agents who supervise the reservations and the military officials and so forth will say over and over again, the ghost dance only appeals to the old and to the disaffected. It, it's to it, the young people who've been at at boarding schools, and by this time many Native people had been to boarding schools and had graduated from boarding schools, uh, they will say these young people will have nothing to do with it, and the, and the Christian converts who are 
have been started going to church and so forth will also have nothing to do with it and reject it. And it's just not true. Uh, that Mooney himself recognized, uh, and it's abundantly clear in the sources, that many of the leaders of the ghost dance, particularly on the Southern Plains, were graduates of boarding schools. Many of them were professed Christians. And the ghost dance appealed to them. So it, there's, there, there are ways in which things that are going on on the ground, the, the observers simply have a very hard time seeing it because of their essential racism, I think, is, is a big part of it. That they just can't believe the Indians who are dancing would also be wanting to send their kids to school. That, that just doesn't, they, they can't square that circle. Um, historians in the years since, I mean, I, th I think it's really interesting. Um, anthropologists in some ways have been able to, I'm going to put it in a strange way. Anthropologists have been able to know things about the ghost dance that historians have a harder time knowing. And it, it has to do with the way we tell stories. Uh, the story of the ghost dance is so powerful a narrative device uh, because it's a story of closure and an ending. It's the way that we have been telling the story of the ghost dance is, is it, uh, this calamitous end of a religious revival at Wounded Knee, which is another thing we should get to that that's not actually what happens. It doesn't end at Wounded Knee. But the way historians tell this story the whole moment ends in 1890 at, at Wounded Knee, and there's this massacre, and then they say, that's it. It, it. it pretty much ended the whole movement. And 1890 is a great moment to do that because that's the year that the Census Bureau declares the frontier is closed, right? Uh, that's the, the moment that, uh, oh, there are just all kinds of, of endings that happen in 1890. It, the Deadwood stage runs its last leg uh, as as the as is replaced by the railroad in 1890, right? They're just on and on and on. We, there are just so many moments of closure, and it's very powerful to say that this was a, a movement that spoke more to the past, more to the 19th century than it did to the 20th. Um, it's a very powerful narrative device, and I think that most of the time. Historians haven't spent a lot of time looking at the sources for the ghost dance religion itself. They tend to get caught up talking about how Wounded Knee happened and looking at those documents rather than looking at the beginnings of the ghost dance and what the ghost dance was actually teaching. Um, it's kind of assumed, I think I assumed when I started this book that I knew what the ghost dance said. I, I didn't. I, I didn't actually expect to go back and find anything new in the ghost dance teachings for myself. I thought I knew what it was about. And I thought it was about, you know, the world is ending uh, and, and we want the buffalo and the old ways back. And I, I thought it was all the things that other historians have said. Um, and it was only when I began looking at the sources and I came across some sources um, that you know, other people have seen and that have kicked around for a while, but I began to I look to look into them deeply and, and to find these quotes from these evangelists and from Wovoka himself that I began to wonder, wait a minute, this, this just doesn't seem to fit with, with what we know of the ghost dance. So how, how do we make sense of this? 
Before we get to Wounded Knee, I want to take a second and look at how the ghost dance spreads to South Dakota in the first place, because it spreads very rapidly out of Nevada and across the Great Basin and across the Great Plains pretty quickly at the end and over the course of the the late 1880s. So can you tell us how the ghost dance spread and uh, how it was received both by whites and Native Americans in the various places where it took root? Sure. It, it starts again, late 1880s, 88, 89 in, in Nevada. Um, and these big dances uh, that is just people turning in a circle, uh, men and women holding hands, and it's alternating men and women in a single circle and children too. Uh, and there'd be a singer singing songs in the middle, usually Wovoka, Jack Wilson. No fire, no musical instruments, by the way. Just the singing and the, and the rhythm of, the, of people's feet on the soil. Uh, the dance was, and the teachings were witnessed by a group of, apparently of Bannock Indians from, uh, from what's now Pocatello, from Fort Hall, from the reservation there in Idaho. They were visiting. Uh, there are a lot of, there's a lot of rel- their relatives. Uh, they're related peoples, the Bannocks and Northern Paiutes. And, and there are a lot of uh, family members the families that are spread across both of those tribal nations. So uh, they were visiting northern Nevada in 1889 and, and heard the teachings and took them back to Fort Hall. And Fort Hall is on the, it's on, in the northern Rockies. And a lot of, this is the beginning of the reservation era, right? And, and one of the things we don't think about that much um, in American history is among native people, what is actually happening at the beginning of the reservation era is, is a, actually there's a lot of visiting among people from different reservations. They, they go back and forth visiting each other, consulting with each other about how are you guys making it in this? How are you doing? Because uh, over here where we're living, you know, things are going like this. How are they going here? How do you deal with this and that? And there's a lot of that kind of um, consulting uh, between these tribal nations. And so the Bannock people go back to Fort Hall. And at Fort Hall, uh, there are visiting uh, people. There are Eastern Shoshone people who are visiting. Uh, and they come from over in, and, and northern Arapahoes from over in uh, at a place called Wind River Reservation in Wyoming. And they learn the teachings and take them back over to Wyoming. And from Wyoming, um, there are people who are re- actually related. Uh, there are Lakotas who have relatives on the reservations in Wyoming who learn these teachings and then take them back over to South Dakota. And this happens really quickly. It, it, this is going on by the fall of 1889. Uh, it, it's, it's already in South Dakota. And in similar ways, it, it's reaching... Uh, Oklahoma, because there are Southern Arapahoes and Southern Cheyennes who come up to the reservations in Wyoming uh, and there encounter uh, these teachings and take them back to Oklahoma. Now, that's the way people are doing it. And one of my questions was, you know, how are these people getting around uh, to do this? And it's it becomes the thing that's just so striking. Actually, at the time, many officials were completely 
flummoxed by this. They could not understand how these Indians were starting to dance this same dance and talk about these teachings and this prophet and the coming Messiah. How were they all doing this so quickly? It spread so fast. What is happening? How does this happen? These are, these are native people. They don't communicate with each other in modern ways. How do they learn, how do they learn these teachings so quickly? Well, they do communicate with each other in modern ways. These people are traveling on the train, uh, the train which is now Right, the, the transcontinental railroads are built, uh, and there are, you know, among Lakotas, for example, people get on the train and over in Wyoming, uh, and they'll ride west and just get off at different reservations and and sort of check things out, and then they'll get back on the train and and keep going, and that is how people came to Wavoka. Um, they would come down on the train. Um, uh, that, what was then called the, there was a spur line called the Carson in Colorado that ran right down through the town of Shures, which is uh, on the, the northern Paiute reservation there. It's near Yarrington. And they would, um, a lot of native people would come out that way on the train. Now, so people are moving back and forth. And in fact, there are dozens of, of Indians at a time who are arriving on these trains to hear Wavoka speak. And there's quite a bit of anxiety uh, about uh, wh- who are all these Indians and what are they doing here, right? Uh, among white people, there's that kind of concern. But there's also, um, there are other ways that Native people communicate. A lot of the, uh, the these peoples, um, Southern Arapahoes, for example, in Oklahoma, when they, <clears throat> when they decide to go out and hear Wavoka, a group of elders will get together and decide who should go, and they would appoint a a graduate of the boarding schools to go with them, because the boarding school graduates usually spoke better English, and they often wrote. They usually wrote. They could write, and they could read. So you have these younger people going along with some of the older folks, the older folks being in their 40s, uh, for the most part, the younger folks being, you know, 20, 22, maybe, uh, and and they would get out to the res to hear Wavoka and the Carlisle or the, the graduates of the boarding schools at Carlisle Indian Industrial School and some of these other boarding schools would often write the teachings down and write down key uh, elements of the prophecies and they would send these through the mail to friends from boarding school at other reservations uh, they would send these through the mail to other to home um, now critics of the ghost dance among Indian people. And there were many. Um, Most native people on these reservations did not participate in the ghost dance. At its peak, among the Lakota Sioux, where it had a particularly enthusiastic and committed and devoted following, at its peak, the ghost dance probably drew in one third of Lakota people. So there, there are lots of people who uh, have their doubts about the ghost dance among these native communities. And, and they uh, also would communicate with each other about what's going on through the mail. So the mail is really important in spreading the ghost dance. And so is the railroad. And so are boarding schools. Uh, and the last way they do it is with telegrams. Um, there, there are I, very, very few telegrams that we... Uh, in fact, I, I can't, I, I struggle to think of a single surviving telegram from Native people about the ghost dance, from one Native correspondent to another. But there are 
really reliable accounts of uh, people of native people sending these telegrams to each other, and that that also is a key part of how these things, how these teachings get communicated. So there's a whole network of communication that has been built by conquerors in the West, and it's being used by by the the conquered people to figure out how to make their way in this strange new West that they exist in now. And as you say, the the religion becomes quite popular um, on Pine Ridge and in South Dakota among among the various reservations there on the Northern Plains, which brings us to the well-known and tragic events at Wounded Knee at the end of December in 1890. And you provide in the book a really extraordinarily compelling retelling of that story. And you argue that the line from this religious revival movement to the massacre is not exactly as straight a line as uh, other historians and storytellers have often made it out to be. So can you tell us what the relationship was between ghost dancing and the massacre at the end of December in 1890 at Wounded Knee? Oh, gosh. Um, it's such a complicated story in so many <laughs> yeah. ways. Um, yeah. But first of all, and I have to say, um, in, in doing this story, I mean, this is, this is such a, a painful moment in the story for... Uh, for for native people and for um, for descendants um, and just for native people generally to to uh, to have to sort of uh, listen to this story um, it, it it it's always um, a, a, a painful account uh, and extraordinarily painful and I should say I I, I approach talking about it with. Um, I, I am an outsider. I am not a native person. I, I try to be as sensitive as I can in discussing these things. And in doing this work, I did set out to consult with uh, people who, a person who is uh, a practitioner of the old religion and, and is, a, is a, and knows the, the holy ways. Um, and I worked with Arthur Amiot, who is a, a, a scholar uh, and a practitioner. Um, and it was from, uh, uh, from Pine Ridge. And, uh, the, the thing that most, I think, I think one of the things that is, is so difficult is that this religion, which was about peace and about moving forward, gets suppressed by the army. It, it is the dance and the, the, uh, the teachings of this new religion that, really creates a lot of panic in official the official hierarchy of the army and the, the government. And so the, when the army crushes uh, this movement, the way they do that, they're, they're, they're sent out to stop the ghost dance, to stop people from dancing. And so they, they go out to these different camps where people are dancing on the reservation and tell them you have to stop. And if you don't stop, we're going to... Um, uh, you won't be able to get any food. You're not getting any more rations. And everyone has to come into the agency, that is the reservation headquarters where the government keeps an eye on everything, and camp there until we make sure that everybody stopped dancing. Uh, right? So uh, there is a group of, of uh, mini Kanju Lakotas who uh, are under uh, Chief Bigfoot, led by Chief Bigfoot, who are coming down uh, to Pine Ridge uh, and they they get caught by they try to surrender to the seventh cavalry is what happens. Uh, the seventh cavalry tries to take their 
their guns, uh, their, to, to, to confiscate all weapons. Um, there's some back and forth about this. They, they hand over some weapons. The army thinks there's more. They, somebody ends up firing a shot. The most compelling accounts are that, the, that I've read and the ones that I uh, place most credence in are, are the ones that talk about these two soldiers wrestling with a young man uh, to get his gun away from him. He had a good rifle. Um, but he's a deaf man. Um, no one had had a chance to sign to him that the, what was going on. He just saw the army grabbing these guns and these guys came over and tried to grab his. And he actually said, uh, he shouted something which the army didn't understand. And what he shouts is, um, I, this is my gun. I paid good money for it. No one takes it from me without paying me first. Uh, and they grab the gun. They, they're wrestling with him and the gun goes off. Uh, the army commander opens, orders his troops to open fire and they kill dozens of people. And then it goes on for hours. Uh, the people run, the people scream and are running and are trying to get away for the most part. Some of the men turn around and try to fight off the army. Uh, it goes on for hours. Uh, the troops hunt down unarmed Indians and shoot them. Um, it, it's it's uh, one of the gravest atrocities, right, in the in the historical record. So, what does that have to do with the ghost dance? Well, when you get down to it, and you track down everything that happens that leads up to that moment, it's it's so uh, it, it, it's a very complex passage to that moment. But but here's here's the context, right? Um, the ghost dance comes to Pine Ridge at a moment when it comes to Pine Ridge and the neighboring reservation of Rosebud. Um, Pine Ridge is mostly Oglala Sioux and, and over at Rosebud, you have mostly Brulee uh, Sioux. And those are the two, two of the places where it's got the most fervent and enthusiastic followings. But um, there is this whole story of the ghost dance arriving and then how do authorities respond before the army gets there? And um, there's, there's just a lot of panic in official circles about the ghost dance. Uh, it, and it doesn't come, initially there, there's not panic. There's, just, there's only one Indian agent who's worried about it at first and the others just think, oh, it's a passing thing. They'll stop doing this dance and it'll go away. Um, but what what is the larger context here is that there had been a, a series of negotiations with Western Sioux people in 1889, 1888, and then 1889. And these negotiations were very one-sided, where the government came in and demanded that they hand over about half the reservation for a pittance, because the government decided that they'd given the, they'd, they'd somehow uh, allowed Lakotas to keep too much land, and they wanted, wanted them to pass to give up most of the good farmland. Uh, Lakotas refused to sell, um, but it didn't matter. The government, uh, the best evidence is the government forged signatures on the agreement and Congress accepted it. And the land was stripped away. Uh, at the same time, the government 
was busy trying to save money. Right? There were a con Congress trying to save money. So what do they do? They they cut the beef uh, ration at Pine Ridge by a million pounds. Um, and similar economies at the other Sioux reservations uh, uh, means that uh, there's just a, a uh, people being pushed to the very edge of starvation and sometimes over the edge. Um, there is a sense of crisis at these reservations when the ghost dance arrives. Um, the ghost dance suddenly shows up and it's promising a new world and it's promising hope and it's very exciting. And when people begin to do the dance uh, at these at, at the Sioux reservations, one of the things out on the one of the things that happens on the plains with this religion that's different from from the way it, it works in Nevada is that on the plains, people who do the dance often fall to the ground and have uh, visions themselves of the the world that is coming and they encounter the spirits of their ancestors um, and one of the things that um, someone uh, well w w one of the things one of the ways to think about this is that uh, the people are communicating with spirits in the other world about the world that is coming and that it it's very uh, exciting and sort of redemptive moment. And it's a, it's a sense that your ancestors are going to be with you, right? That you are not lost to that world. And consequently, um, it, it, there's, there's a, a lot of excitement. And then the government being very worried about what does this excitement mean? Is it a rebellion? Because at the same moment the ghost dance is happening, there's a lot of discontent about how the land was stripped away. And a lot of people are meeting to discuss that. And what should we do about that? So the government just tries to ban all meetings and all dances. And they particularly crack down on the ghost dance. Um, and it's just a disaster because the people they use to crack down on the ghost dance are the Indian police, who are Lakotas, who are employed by the government to be policemen. Um, but the way the way it shakes out is that there are these different groups on the reservation who are very much different followers of the ghost dance, and then people who feel the ghost dance just doesn't do anything for them. But eventually, what happens is that the the people who are not ghost dancers uh, on the reservations often come to feel that the ghost dancers are attracting too much attention and that they're going to bring in, the, they're going to result in the government cracking down on everybody. Uh, and so divisions begin to grow between ghost dancers and non-ghost dancers. And, uh, but for, through all that, I have to say the most striking thing is when you actually look at who is dancing on the reservations is it, it tends to draw in a very wide array of people uh, before the government tries to stop it. Uh, there are people who are, have rejected Christianity who feel that this is a native way of believing. It's a spiritual practice, a ceremony that they, that moves them. There are also people who are Christians. The, the estimates are not very good estimates, but the, the best ones we have that probably half 
uh, Lakotas uh, on Pine Ridge were attending church. Um, by the time the ghost dance arrives, many people who had begun to call themselves Christians and who were seen as leaders of uh, the Christian uh, of, of Christian groups on the reservation, many of them were also ghost dancers. And clearly to them, the ghost dance didn't conflict with Christianity, right? Um, so it, it tends, where there's been a kind of religious divide that has been forced on this reservation by colonialism and by missionaries and by government policy, the ghost dance is a way for people to kind of get together in one circle again and restore this old community and, and be doing the same dance again. Um, and, and for a moment, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful moment. And, and it, it brings great joy to people. Uh, but these divisions that the government forces by trying to shut it down, it, it, that's what ends up causing all of the tension and the bloodshed. It, it really is the government attempting to, to end it that, that creates the problem. I, I don't know if any religion has ever been suppressed without bloodshed, but certainly this one wasn't. And as you said uh, a bit earlier, Wounded Knee is sort of traditionally within the historiography and, and within the, the kind of typically told story of American history, it's presented as an ending, whether that's the ending of armed resistance by indigenous people on the plains or whether it's the ending of the ghost dance itself. But as you say in the book, that's not exactly the case. So how is it not an ending? And how do people respond to the massacre in the, the years afterwards? Well, um, it's not an ending. Because, I mean, it's, it does end the kind of uh, the, the moment of uh, sort of fervent joy and hope ends in, in some ways um, at Pine Ridge. Right. There's, there's there are there's a huge amount of enthusiasm for this new uh, this new religion. And by the way, I should say that. Uh, I'm calling it a religion. And some people object to that and say, look, this, that's a Western way of thinking about things. Uh, religion is a Western term um, that, that, you know, it's the correct term would be spiritual practice or ceremonial practice or, or any number of others. And I, I'm perfectly fine with all of those suggestions. And I, I, to a degree, uh, agree with them. But one of the things that these that the believers of, of the ghost dance made very clear over and over and over again was that this was a religion, and they they spoke about it that way, and, and they they're doing it partly uh, because what what they've learned by 1889, what Native people have learned is um, right they've, they've been watching missionaries f for a long time, and and Protestants and Catholics, Protestant and Catholic missionaries fight with each other terribly on Indian reservations, awful feuds. Right. They drag Indians into those feuds. They 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 will tell them, you know, the Protestants will tell them not to talk to Catholics and they'll tell them Catholics worship idols. And the Catholics will tell them not to talk to Protestants because all the Protestants are going to go to hell for being heretics. Um, and uh, it, it gets really bad. That that feuding gets very bad on, on at Pine Ridge, among other places. And native people learn, look, there's clearly more than one way to worship Christ. And more than one way to worship God. And this is our way. Right? You have that religion and this is our religion. They would say that over and over again. And I th 
they're clearly not, I mean, they're, they're not saying, right, we, we demand our rights under the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. They're not saying that yet. But they're about to start saying that. And this language around the ghost dance being a religion is a vital part of what I see as later uh, movements, not much later. I mean, they're actually contemporary. They, the, the movement to, uh, to get official recognition for the Native American church in the peyote religion, that is a contemporary, of the, contemporary movement of the ghost dance that, and in fact, the ghost dance experience shapes uh, the strategic moves that people in the Native American church make. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, that, that's why I'm using the term religion anyways, because the believers at the time talked about it that way. And I do think it's important for us to think about the fact that as James Mooney concluded, I think rightly, the ghost dance is as sophisticated and complex of a way of thinking spiritually as any of the major Western religions. Right? That, that was his, uh, his argument in 1896 in, the, in his book on the ghost dance religion. And I, I think that's, that's certainly true. Um, now, uh, did it, what happened after 1890? Well, you know, it, it does go underground on the Lakota reservations for the most part for a few years. But the religion continues to exist and people continue to ghost dance. And it revives by the late 1890s, um, 1897 or so on the Northern Plains and it spreads into Canada. In Canada, it becomes a church called the New Tidings Congregation. Uh, the dancing gives way to feasting. They, they stop dancing using the, the, the ceremony they Practice involves feasting rather than dancing in uh, on in Canada by uh, the early 1900s, but it goes on to become the New Tidings Congregation. There, um, if you go down to Oklahoma, uh, it it continues. People continue to do the ghost dance well into the 20th century, uh, quite openly, and then um, it, it gets terribly suppressed by these Indian agents, super, federal supervisors of the reservations who withhold people's money. They, they really can they have very great deal of power over Indians on the reservations. They, and they, they basically block their bank accounts if they are ghost dancers. And so it, it looks like it disappears. Um, but there's lots of evidence that it doesn't, that, that people continue to do it. And one of the ways, the things that happens is, is that I was very curious about what happened to all of these young ghost dancers um, on the Southern Plains who were leaders in the ghost dance movement. Many of them, if you look at them, actually become evangelical Christians and uh, Pentecostals in particular. Now, Pentecostalism is normally dated, the beginning of Pentecostalism is normally dated to about 1906, there's a, there's a huge revival in, in Los Angeles, and then it, it spreads. Um, but this notion of um, that kind of original um, uh, encounter with the Creator that you can have through Pentecostalism, in which people have visions and speak in tongues, and uh, that you, you don't need a religious hierarchy Right to to uh, to introduce you or to keep you to, with God that you you can have the Spirit come into you and transform your body those kinds of beliefs um, many ghost dancers apparently 
uh, felt were, were quite similar to ghost dancing. And in fact, some of them said that ghost dancing and Pentecostalism were the same thing. Um, and, and that's true uh, among various different peoples in Oklahoma, where Pentecostalism became very big. Uh, in the 1930s, <clears throat> one man told uh, an anthropologist, ghost dancing, yeah, the government really was hard on it. They really stamped, on, stamped it out, but I think it's going to come back with the holy rollers. Uh, and they called Pentecostals holy rollers because in moments of ecstasy, Pentecostals were known to actually roll on the ground. That's where the term holy rolling comes from. Uh, and there were many Native people who, who participated in that. So um, the ghost dance shapes religious practice going forward, but it, it also remains uh, something that, that people do. Now, I have to say, you know, it's, I was writing about 1889 and 90, 1890 primarily. Um, in the 20th century, among many people, the ghost dance has become more esoteric. It's become hidden. Um, it has such a an alluring name, a name that kind of tantalizes non-Indian, non-believing people who hear about it and want to see it, um, that it's, it's often done secretly um, because it's to avoid outsiders interfering with it. Um, but it is, it is something that, a ceremony that people still participate in. Um, and it, it had a powerful impact on native ways of being and, and believing and, and thinking not just about the spirit world, but about this world and about Indianness and Indian identity. Uh, the ghost dance is kind of one of those seminal moments in which native people <clears throat> are practicing thinking about themselves not just as members of tribal nations, but as native people together as a kind of pan-Indian movement. So we've been talking for about an hour now, and I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask at least one question about James Mooney, because he is such an important figure in the, the latter third or so of your book. So just in brief, can you tell us who James Mooney was and why he does play such a crucial role in the story that you tell? Yeah, Mooney, uh, it's a good question. Mooney's a, an, uh, the anthropologist who goes out to interview Wovoka in late 1891. He actually meets him New Year's Day, 1892. And that's actually why I wanted to, when, to write the book initially. was the thing, the, or not why, but the idea I had to write the book initially was just going to be about this meeting between the prophet and the anthropologist in the middle of the desert in Nevada. Uh, <laughs> it, it's sort of, I mean, here's Wovoka, who is this, this charismatic visionary who has such spirit power and so many devoted followers. Um, and it, every account of him is, is just so compelling. And it's, it's sort of as if Jesus had an anthropologist, right? Hmm. It's a prophet in the desert, Right. And here comes an anthropologist and I, I sort of was going to write a book of just a, maybe one long essay or some short essays of, you know, a short book really about that moment and, and kind of the come of modern age. And what does it mean when to have a prophet meet a social scientist? But uh, Mooney, Mooney is a, is a really interesting figure in his own right in that the book he wrote, the Ghost Dance Religion and Sioux Outbreak of 1890 is, uh, it, it not only is one of the best sources, uh, again, it, it, as I make clear in my book, 
he gets things wrong, um, but he does an awful lot that's right that no one else could have done at the time. And the key to understanding Mooney is this, that he works for a, a government agency called the Bureau of, of Ethnology. Later, it's the Bureau of American Ethnology. And their job was to go out and collect um, artifacts or mostly stories uh, and, and uh, beliefs and so forth and record them uh, among Indian people in hopes of allowing Indian people to be assimilated better. Uh, because this is the period when the government, again, is trying to assimilate all of these people. And so, you know, this is a, the Indians are considered a sort of vanishing resource. They're going to go away and, and we need to record their culture before they do. And along the way, as we record their culture, we can figure out how better to manage them into right, the modern era is the way it was thought of at the time. Of course, Indians are thoroughly modern already, but in the eyes of officials, they needed to be modernized. Right? And once you modernize them, they'll disappear. And so that, that's what Mooney's job is, is to collect data that will allow Indians to be better managed by officials and, and to be managed right out of existence. Uh, but Mooney's got a really conflicted relationship with that because Mooney himself is the son of poor Irish immigrants. Now, uh, he works in a bureau that's dominated by Anglo-American fairly well-to-do men who are um, the kind of classic Victorian-era anthropologists, right? A lot of them uh, fascinated with Indian cultures and so forth, and, and many many of them quite brilliant in their own right. Uh, but they have a very different take on assimilation from Mooney. Mooney himself was an Irish nationalist uh, and a firm believer that Irish culture was actually at, at least the equal of English and Anglo-American culture and probably superior. Uh, Mooney spoke Irish, or he learned to speak Irish. He founded an organization called the Gaelic Society in Washington, D.C., and he was its first president. Uh, it's a very important organization that would, would uh, continue to cultivate Irish language and literature uh, both in the United States and in Ireland itself. Um, he was very involved uh, just as a correspondent with Irish nationalists uh, who were fighting against right, English colonialism um, at this time. Right? The Irish Republic doesn't come around until right around the time that Mooney dies. Uh, Mooney dies in the early 1920s. Uh, and until then, Ireland is a colony of, of Britain, right? And, and parts of Ireland still are. So... Mooney's experience of colonialism growing up is a very conflicted one. He grows up in the United States and he is a patriotic American in many ways, uh, in every way, really. But his, he has abiding questions about the virtues of colonialism. And when he goes to work on Native people and becomes an anthropologist, which is his great passion, right, anthropology, he really... Uh, is, is thinks very differently about that work than other anthropologists at the time do. Um, he, he just has a harder time accepting that if Native people are going to vanish, and for a long time he accepts that they are, that that's a good thing. He, he's really torn about that. 
And in the ghost dance, when he writes about the ghost dance, he does think that it's vanishing. He, he keeps wanting to say that it's ending. Um, and, and the book uh, that he writes, he keeps saying it's over now. And then he will add a little line as the book goes on a little longer. So actually, the ghost dance has started again in, in, in Oklahoma among you know, Kiowa people, for example. In 1894, just before he went to press, it's, the ghost dance started up again among Kiowa people. And he had to put that back in the book. And so it's like he keeps wanting to say it's over, but then it, it's, it, it doesn't end. And he ends up saying yeah, it's going on even now as I write this. Uh, but the tone of the book, again, is one of that great narrative closure. But Mooney's work would go on, and among the things that most intrigued him was the peyote religion, in which people saw peyote as a, uh, a spiritual presence in its own right, a part of, of the spirit power that made the universe of God, um, and that by ingesting peyote, you could have these, these sacred visions that would lead you to the good path. Um, and this is becomes a very, I mean, there's much more to the religion than that, that I, that little, that, this little thumbnail description I'm trying to give here. But just to, to convey that Mooney was fascinated uh, by peyote, which he learned about at the same moment he learned about the ghost dance. The, the, the two uh, practices were going on at the same time in Oklahoma in the 18, late 1880s. Uh, Mooney learned about peyote while he was researching the ghost dance, and he began to research it. It was very controversial. The government tried to stamp out peyote for decades, and in many, in some ways, still is. Um, Mooney became a part of the movement to stop that and to make the government to make to to create a an established church a church of uh, for for peyote believers. And he he the the lore within the Native American church which is the church established uh, in, in which to, to, to make peyote a sacrament, right, uh, officially. And the, the lore is that Mooney was at the founding meeting and that he encouraged, uh, he encouraged the use of a charter. The Native American church takes out a charter in the state of Oklahoma that makes them, uh, gives them legal protections. But he also allegedly, I don't know if, it's, if, it, what, if, this, is, if this is true, but the story is, that he, it was Mooney who told them, call it uh, <clears throat> Native American rather than Indian, because they, by the early, like late 1890s, there's a fervent uh, anti-immigrant movement. And Native people are beginning to use the term Native American to describe themselves, to make the point, right, among other things, that they are Native and white people are immigrants, right? Um, and... He says, call it Native American because that'll, that'll get their attention, right? And, and they won't uh, attack you. And call it a church because they'll never touch anything that's a church. And I don't know if Mooney actually said those things or not. Many of the people who were in the ghost dance were saying similar kinds of things about the ghost dance being a church. And in fact, many of the founders of the Native American church had been leaders of the ghost, or at least a, a good number had been leaders of or participants of the, in the ghost dance uh, in Oklahoma. And so Mooney's very much a part of that. And he's, he comes to, to realize that I, I, I make the argument he realizes that Native people are not vanishing or that they shouldn't vanish. Um, and the ghost dance religion book that he wrote in 1896 is, as, 
as best I can tell, it's the first government report. It's actually an official government report. And it's the first one to say, you know, this assimilation policy is a bad idea. That we should just let these people believe what they want to believe. Why are we getting people killed in order to stop them believing? It doesn't work. It's inhumane. It's not democratic. It's not Christian. Why are we doing this? And uh, he's a really path-breaking thinker that way. So as you've described today, this is a it's a it's a rich and wonderful and really complicated book that's it's it's hard to summarize in as you put a second kind of a thumbnail kind of way. But if there was one takeaway that you would hope readers could come away from this book with, what would it be? If there's one takeaway, that's a tough one. Um, it depends on the readers, really. It depends on what reader where the reader comes from. But um, I, I guess. You know, the things that I think about when I talk about this book, that kind of reshape the way I want to think about American history is we're constantly wanting to put Indian people right in the past in American history. And they're in the present. Oh, my gosh. You know, it, it's it's it, it, this this native native history itself doesn't just doesn't end in the 19th century or in the 20th century, it's here, right? And you can see it around us now, what's, what things that are going on now. Um, you know, uh, these, we had a couple of years ago, this sort of, there are moments that are quite spectacular that bring, that remind us of this, you know, standing, the, the events at Standing Rock a few years ago, uh, a couple of years ago were, were like that. Um, but I guess, you know, it's, it's really hard, even when you're doing, uh, working as a professional historian, right? We're the ones who are supposed to know how all this works. But it's really hard to remember that when you're looking at, at uh, the making of the, those great empires of steel and railroads and so forth um, and banking on the East Coast, right? You look at the kind of creation of what we think of as American modernity, in the 1880s and 90s, that these events are happening in the West and people are rethinking their relationship to their creator. Um, and people are always rethinking that and thinking hard about that and what to do with that, I think. And that's a very, you know, that's a, that's a part of modernity too, I think. Um, and that people want to reject so much of what modernity brings and they try to find, I mean, here, this, this religion brings uh, to its believers, right, to, to its followers, a sense that modernity will be, in the end, rejected. It will end, right? We will get this world in which, um, you know, the, the prophecy was it would be an all-Indian world and uh, people would be perpetually young and that, that it would be, you know, there, there is reference in that to, to things being as they were in the, in the old days. Uh, but it, it's kind of like a vision in which the entire world is assimilated Indian. And, and it, it's, it's kind of like when you get down to that and as a, as a non-Indian person, as a, as a historian who works in, in documents, reading paper day after day, you kind of, you, you often lose sight of uh, just how exciting those visions are, right? And what they mean. And I guess, 
the, the how alive all that still is. Uh, if not, I mean, whether we're talking about the ghost dance or other religions, or other spiritual practices and ceremonial practices, uh, other ways of being, there's so much of that that's still alive and, and with us and that has a history, right? Um, I was helped in this book immensely uh, by... Uh, my native friends and, and consultants who helped me uh, understand the ways that the ghost dance sit, sat, sat and sits in, in native ways of believing and, and of ceremonial practice. Uh, among Northern Paiute people was Marlon Thompson, who's the tribal historian there at the Yarrington Paiute tribe, uh, was an immense help to me. Um, uh, as I mentioned uh, Arthur Amiot, uh, my old friend, Arthur Amiot was such a good friend, uh, to me. He's always been such a great friend to me and he's such a help to me in this book in thinking about how the ghost dance, uh, is situated within Lakota ways of believing and wh- where it, what it, how it relates to that. And then, uh, Roderick Sweezy, who was in, uh, so kind to me out, uh, in Oklahoma in helping me think about, uh, the relationship between the ghost dance and Southern Arapaho belief and practice. And uh, those, uh, their help was, was just so important to me. And each of these people, right, is, uh, uh, gosh, they're inspirational. They, they are all, all uh, have all been involved in part of, as part of their lives, uh, to carry forward these uh, native ceremonial practice. Um, that to me is heroic and inspirational and it makes me very optimistic about the world. And I just think if you could think about the diversity of ways of believing and the way that those, each of those ways has a history uh, and those histories overlap and we, they, they inspire each other and they shape each other. Uh, I guess that that would be a big part of what I hope people take away from the book. So, Louie, I know the book has not been out very long, but traditionally on the show, we like to get a preview from our authors about what might be coming next around the pike. So do you have any idea of what your next project might be? Any Anywhere you think your research might take you next? I'm working on a couple of things, but probably a book on California would be next. Um I'm, I'm working on how California got to be a world power. That sounds really interesting. We'll look forward to reading that. Yeah, I will too. <laughs> Thanks so much, Steve. Louis Warren is the W. Turrentine Jackson Professor of Western U.S. History at UC Davis and is the author of God's Red Sun, The Ghost Dance Religion and the Making of Modern America, which came out in 2017 and, in 2018, won Columbia University's Bancroft Prize for the best book in American history. Louis, thanks again for joining us today. Thanks so much. 